1, 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and, and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Genesis 2, 18 through 25. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper, a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then Lord God made made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she has taken out of man. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is the word of the Lord. This morning we begin a new series um, that's entitled Invitation and Challenge, The Call to Discipleship. In many ways, actually Bishop John Brodowski got us started last week, and that was intentional. We had talked at the National Gathering, kind of setting the stage. For the next several months, we're really going to be exploring that call to discipleship as he gave it to us. We're going to be unpacking what it means to not only believe in Jesus Christ, but also to follow him with our lives. Our primary resource for answering a question like this, of what does it mean to follow Jesus Christ, let alone believe in him, is, as we've heard many times, of course, the Bible. Unfortunately, as I've tried to share, and as you've shared with me as your pastor, for many of us, maybe not all of us, but for many of us, engaging scripture can sometimes feel like reading Shakespeare. We know it's significant, we believe it's important, but we struggle to understand what it's saying and what it means. Our time together this year is about addressing this obstacle. The goal of this series is to help us to understand the Bible, the grand story into which God is calling us not only to live, but that's the essence of our following, of our discipleship. And, and as a way of doing this over this next year, we're going to be again and again encountering two themes that in many ways serve as the lens by which we can and we should continually read the scriptures. And these, the lens that I'm speaking of, these two themes are covenant and kingdom. Covenant and kingdom in many ways are the latitude and longitude by which we stay on course through the whole exciting and often confusing landscape of the Bible. And there's a lot that takes place between its pages from Genesis to Revelation. On the one hand, as we read the Bible, we discover people that are as diverse as we are. On the other hand, while each person we read about encounters various challenges, their hopes, their dreams, their needs are no different than ours. Much of the Bible's insight for us is in its application 
to our ordinary experience, how we engage relationships, and how we perceive our responsibility for our lives and for the lives of others. And those two words, relationship and responsibility. And if you want, if you're a person who likes to take notes, this would be a time to write something down because this is going to be something that's going to be coming back to. And on the prayer insert, there's a blank space if you want to write this down. Those two words, relationship and responsibility, are going to be our core ways of thinking about and remembering what covenant and kingdom are all about. When we think covenant, we want to think about relationship. And when we hear kingdom, you're going to hear me say over and over again, we want to think about responsibility. Covenant and kingdom. Covenant is about relationship, the way God develops his relationship with his people, and therefore how that shapes how we are to be in relationship with each other. Covenant is about relationship, how God develops his relationship with his people, and therefore how that shapes how we are in relationship with each other. And kingdom is about responsibility. Kingdom is about responsibility, how God expects his people, the people he's in relationship with, to live and act, how God invites and challenges us to live out the responsibility that he, he has given us. Kingdom is about responsibility, how God expects the people that he's in relationship with to live and act. Over these next few months, we are going to see this is really the DNA of the Bible. The DNA of the Bible is in these two ideas of covenant and kingdom, of relationship and responsibility. And we're going to unpack these two themes through looking at some of the major figures of Scripture, Adam and Eve, Abraham, Moses, David, and after Christmas, we'll spend some time in the book of Esther. But this morning, as we begin this look at discipleship, as we look at these two ideas of covenant and kingdom, we're going to start with covenant. And as I said, if we, as we begin, covenant is, if it's about relationship, then it, if covenant is about relationship, if that's the word that we want to think of with covenant, then it begs the question, what is our primary relationship in life? What's the most important relationship we have in life? And if you know the right answer, the church answer, you would say, God. That's right. But the more pointed question, as much as we can all say, well, our most important relationship, our primary relationship is God, the more pointed question is when we say that, with whom exactly are we in relationship? You know, we say on all of our money in this country, in God we trust. But what do we mean by God? God is a very generic term. What I'm getting at this morning as we say, we think about relationship, covenant, relationship, and our primary relationship being with God. My question for us this morning to just pause a moment and think about is how do we picture God? How do you picture God? Take a second. Visualize, however you process. How do you picture God? It's like a word association. I say God, you think. How do we picture God? Let me share with you some of the pictures of God that have been reflected back at me in my time as a pilgrim of the faith and as a pastor. Maybe as I ask you, how do you picture God? Your picture is God is a distant old man. The white beard on that high throne. Grumpy. Disconnected. Unengaged. Yawning a lot. Or maybe your picture of God is that of a vending machine. Kind of an odd picture, but a vending machine with eyes and a mouth. But really, that's not the part we focus on. This is, we picture God as a vending machine. God's about convenience. God's about pushing the right buttons. If you know the right buttons to push, God is very convenient for you. Or maybe your picture of God is that of an angry police officer. 
God is mean. And God is always lurking around the corner, just waiting for us to screw up, because we, he knows we're going to screw up. And in fact, it often feels like God's trapping us. He's setting us to screw up, because this God wants to bring down the hammer, wants to bring down the law. Maybe your picture of God is an angry police officer. Or maybe your picture of God is that of a paramedic, always running around with a stretcher, driving around in the ambulance. God, this God is for emergencies only. This is the God that comes on the scene when we break glass. This God is expected to show up when we hit 911, but otherwise, he's out there somewhere. We expect him to show up, though, if we hit that 911. Or maybe your picture of God is that of a teddy bear. Cuddly, warm and fuzzies. You know, many of us, and you can admit it, we're in church, it's okay. How many of you grew up with a stuffed animal? I don't care how old you are, you better raise your hand if you grew up with a stuffed animal. Raise your, oh, you know you grew up with a stuffed animal. I don't refuse to believe. And that stuffed animal was like our best friend, and it was our best friend because when we came home, we could cuddle it and hold on to it, and it wouldn't say anything bad to us or mean to us because, frankly, it didn't talk at all unless we gave it a voice. And for some of us, God's kind of like that stuffed animal, safe and cuddly, but not demanding. This God, this is the God that only makes us feel good. This God would never say anything to make us feel bad. What's your picture of God? Not one of those pictures. What is it? In the midst of our own thinking about what's our picture of God, we're drawn back to, part of why we come together in worship, is that we have a picture of God that's put before us as part of the Christian faith. Our core, the, one of the core assertions of being a Christian, of the Christian faith, is the statement, we believe in God the Father. In our prayers, in our various hymns and praise songs, in the midst of our creeds, most of them as the church, we don't just invoke the word God. We refer to God as Father. I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about that. We, we invoke God as Father. We, we imply, or we apply, excuse me, what is a very deeply personal and intimate and exclusive term to God. I mean, think about it. You just don't call anybody your father. If you're a dad, you get very, very sensitive about someone else being referred to as, as your child's father. It's a very exclusive term. It's very intimate. It's very personal. That designation is a privileged title. There can be no higher compliment than for someone to say, you're like a second father to me. Who's your daddy? Just exactly who's attached with that label, who's your daddy, can change your life. Probably the most obvious or great example of this pop culturally is there was no more devastating moment in Luke Skywalker's life than when Darth Vader said, no, I am your father. That title, that label is a big deal. It's not something we just throw around, and yet we apply it to God. You ever wonder where that association came from of calling God father? It's covenant language. It's relationship language. It's language that defines, in fact, our understanding of the relationship. That's why it's so significant, so personal. And it comes, contrary to what we may often think, from the very beginning of our story, from our genesis as humanity. We heard, Brooke read it beautifully from Genesis chapter 1, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, 
He created them. Now, you might say, if you're savvy, the word father is never used in Genesis chapter 1. Isn't God in Genesis just the creator? And what I want to suggest to you this morning for us to understand this idea of God as father is that while it's not explicitly stated, the fatherhood of God is implied from the very beginning of our story. The fatherhood of God is implied in the opening pages of the Bible through the description that we're given of how God creates us and why God creates us. Our understanding of the fatherhood of God comes from realizing, perceiving, wrestling with how God creates us and why God creates us. To begin with, we know that God is our father because he creates us in his image. Again, something you probably go, I know this. Yeah, but do we ever stop and think about it? God creates, just in Genesis chapter 1, a lot of stuff. And God's on a regular basis creating all the time, but we are created differently from everything else. Scripture is very significant about this. God's creating all the time, but God creates us differently. The phrase that's in here in Genesis chapter 1 of let us make mankind in our own image literally says, let us go and leave our imprint upon them. To understand this idea of imprint, and if you have your Bible still open, and if you don't, it's right there at the beginning, so it's easy to get to. Go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, to understand this idea of let us leave our imprint upon him. Because in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, we sort of get the other camera angle of how God creates humanity. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, one verse, and it says this, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Let us go and leave our imprint upon them. In Genesis 2, this other angle on what, hap what happens in creation gives us even more detail. It's as if we were made to fit into a mold like clay formed from the dust of the ground. Can you picture that? We were made to fit into a mold like clay formed from dust in the ground. The clay of the earth, God scooped it up. He shaped it by hand. The hand of God shaped us and turned it into flesh. And it's important in the midst of this, and that's why going to Genesis 2, this other angle also gives us more information about how we were created. It's important to note the distinctiveness of how we came, how we still come to life. Throughout the rest of Genesis, or the start of Genesis, all, the, all of creation is spoken into being. God creates by speaking. But Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, specifically tells us that we were breathed into. God is our Father, because he gives us his breath. The word for breath here is ruach. And it's a word that also means spirit. So if you will, God scooping up the clay of the earth, shaping it with his hands into flesh, breathes his spirit into us. God is our father because if you will, he shares part of his DNA with us. He imparts his spirit to us. This has kind of fallen out of fashion because it's been abused, but it, because it's been abused doesn't make it any less true. It's not an arrogant statement to say. Humanity is the pinnacle, the zenith of all that the Lord has made. Scripture makes it clear, in, not just in Genesis, but that humanity alone is the pinnacle, the zenith of what this God has made. Because it is made, we are made in the image of God, and that our life comes because we are filled with the Spirit of God. If we will, if you've never thought of it before, that first day for our first ancestor, Adam, Adam began his existence not just looking into the face of his creator, 
but looking into the face of his father. And for mothers and fathers, when we have our own children, isn't that the, one of the most powerful, life-changing, transformative moments when you hold your child and your child with all the guck and all the other stuff finally opens up its eyes and we know that the child can barely see you, but that moment when your child looks upon you. Adam began his existence not just looking into the eyes of his creator, but looking into the eyes of his father, the one in whose image he was created, the one in whose spirit was within him. You ever think about that, that God is as close as your own breathing, your own spirit? God is more than a creator. He is our father because of how he creates us, in his image, with his breath. But as I said, we also know that God is our father because of why he created us. Why did God create us? Why did God create us? Do you ever think about that? Do you ever think about why did God create us? Was he bored? Did he lose a bet? Having created the universe, did God step back and go, man, I'm going to need more workers for this? Did he need to hire extra help? Did the angels blow it so bad that God needed an a upgrade creation 2.0? Why did God make us? It's interesting, all the things that I've just said to you, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, it's interesting that if you're familiar at all, you remember your classic literature, many of our myths about gods and gods frame the answer to this question of why was humanity created in just this way. It was an accident. It was a fight. It was boredom, etc. All of our myths about where we come from, about God or gods, these are the kind of answers, but it, that's what the myths say, not the Bible. It's where the Bible stands apart. Notice again in Genesis chapter 1, if it's right there in 26, notice, and we often just breeze right past it, but it's kind of startling, the plural is used of God. Our NIV Bible translates it, translates it this way, let us make mankind in our image. Is it a typo? have a translation error here? No. Probably most of you have heard this, but if you let it sink in, what's being revealed to us when, when, when the very start of Genesis says, let us make mankind in our own image, what's being revealed to us is the communal nature of our God. The very essence of where as Christians we get this funky idea, and it is funky because other world religions don't know what to make of it, of a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, starts right here, let us make mankind in our own image. We believe in a communal God. Our creator is a relational God. He creates, this is it, for the purpose of relationship. Not because he's bored, not because he's lonely, but because at his essence, God, this God is about engagement. This God is about building, extending, and sharing community. We create stuff all the time. We create stuff all the time that we dismiss, forget about, ignore, or even discard. We create stuff all the time that we forget about, dismiss, ignore, or regard. I mean, if you just took a moment and thought about all the things you've ever created and how much you still remember, let alone have held on to, proportionally, most of it's been discarded. God's different. God creates with purpose. That's the point of Genesis, among others. God creates with purpose. And if we miss it here in Genesis 1 and 2, the later scriptures tell us that everything, everything, Everything that God creates fulfills its purpose. Nothing that God creates returns void or empty or meaningless. Nothing. 
In fact, if you know this story, it's quite the opposite. Nothing returns empty or void or meaningless because God creates out of nothingness. It's very different from us. Why am I drawing this out for you? Because at its core, or at our core, everything that exists is created to be in relationship with this God. That's why God creates. God creates for relationship. That's why, if you've ever read through the Psalms, just thumb through them. One of the repeated refrains in the Psalms, and now you know why, one of the repeated refrains in the songbook of the Bible is this. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Engage the relationship. God creates for relationship. But again, humanity is different. We, like everything else in creation, are created for relationship. But for us, God is more than creator. God is our father. And this is so important. Like everything else, we were created to be in relationship with God. We're part of that refrain, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. But we are distinctive from everything else in all creation because we are created to be in covenant with this God. And the word covenant means to become one. The word covenant means to become one. And that might help us to tease out how our relationship with God is different than everything else in all creation. Covenant is about relationship, but it's about a relationship of intimacy, a relationship of unity. And that's why this second passage we had in chapter 2 that Brooke read for us is so helpful because we see the extension from what God has created, this covenant understanding of relationship carried over into the continuance of human creation. It's significant how it starts. You might have missed it right at the outset. Adam could not find a suitable helper. No suitable helper for Adam was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, and I love this, this is bones of my bones, flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman. When's the last time we've used that in a positive way? We always say, woman. Adam said, woman, for she was taken out of the man. And scripture goes on, that's why a man leaves his father and mother, leaves one covenant relationship that's very, very close, and enters into an even deeper covenant relationship when he's united with his wife, and they become one flesh. They become one flesh. That's covenant language. That's the relationship of covenant. And notice how it's, 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 it's underscored, it's amplified by everything that precedes it. Why is that one flesh, that idea of that intimacy so significant? Because it starts with it was not good for man to be alone. They were made to be together. God creates for relationship and notice, I use that language of imprint, notice the imprint of the man upon the woman, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, nothing else in all creation. In the midst of the debates that we have in the midst of understanding our humanity, it's right here in Genesis, nothing else in all creation can bring the kind of intimacy and unity of a man and a woman together. In marriage, in friendship, in family, man and woman together reflect the fullness of the image of God. Go back to where it starts. No suitable helper was found until it was man and woman together. That's covenant language. 
a unity that has diversity and yet is inseparable. The starting point of covenant, beloved, is understanding that we worship a God who desires to be one with us, to be in as close a relationship as possible. God is our Father because in creating us, He claims us, He calls us His children. And again, we, we all know this, but when's the last time you let it sink in? I mean, you really let it get into, inside of how you think about yourself and this world around you to help you. We all can remember it's a powerful experience, positive or negative. Do you, do you, can you remember a time in your life when you had that moment of being claimed by someone? You ever remember in school where they picked teams and you hoped that someone was going to pick you? And the moment when everyone else was getting picked and you think, no one's going to pick me, the teachers are going to have to say, okay, you get this guy. One of the most profound, powerful experiences that all of us have at some level is we want to be claimed. We want to know we belong. And when we understand God is our Father, we understand that we belong, that we've been picked. It's as if God in creating us, every single person that God creates, the minute that we are created, the minute that we're a twinkle, as we like to say, in our, our earthly daddy's eye, God says, that's my kid. Isn't that one of the best experiences as a parent, most you know, horrifying for your children, but when you shout out loud, that's my kid! God says to each and every human life that he creates, that's my kid. God is also our Father because he created us not just to be in this intimate relationship. That's part of what covenant is about. But I'm going to dip a little bit into kingdom. God is also our Father because he created us in his likeness, as we heard earlier. He created us to unpack this a little bit more as a reflection of who he is. As a reflection of who he is. Again, this is all stuff you've heard before, but we don't, we got to really chew on this a little bit. In other words, God created us to reflect his identity, to be his reflection to and for each other. God is more than a creator, he is our father, because in creating us, he purposefully tied his identity to us. He has us bearing the family resemblance, if you will. Like any proud father, proud parent, God's desire, the Lord's desire was that when anyone looked at us, they would see him. We, we did the inverse. That's my kid. God designed us so that people would see another person and say, that's a reflection of God. That's a reflection of my dad. Let that sink in for a second. Because... In truth, it's actually more than that. God doesn't just create us in his image as we heard in Genesis already this morning. God doesn't just create us to be a reflection. So we just walk around and we're just you know, reflecting the image of God. God as our father gives us the proverbial keys to the car. Covenant and kingdom, I told you the two words, covenant and kingdom, can be defined by relationship and responsibility, and they're brought here in Genesis. Our fundamental relationship is with God as our Father. We've unpacked that a little bit. But our fundamental responsibility, which is also here, which we're going to continue to unpack at another time, is that our, in our, out of our fundamental relationship comes our fundamental responsibility, and our fundamental responsibility, our most important responsibility, is we represent our Father. We represent our Father. Our father tells us to mind the store, the family business, oversee and care for all creation. We get all hung up on, on you know, well, we're in charge. We're to subdue everything. 
And that's where it's so important, this biblical understanding of stewardship. God says, no, 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 it's not about you just raising hell and you know, doing whatever you want. You represent me. I'm giving you the keys to the car. You're minding the family business. Stewardship, your work is to reflect my sovereignty. In your responsibility or irresponsibility, you reflect my fatherhood. So if the world looks and says, you know what, God's a crappy father, who's doing the poor reflection? Us. And we have the example of this work, working perfectly, of relationship and responsibility. It's beautiful. The primary relationship is Adam's father says to Adam, name the animals. Use the responsibility I've given you. Use the authority that I've given you, and name the animals. It's a little picture of what our lives are to be like. Maybe this is a little bit heady for you, or maybe this is, maybe you're with me. What's the point? The point, beloved, is how we think about God. Write this down. How we think about God affects how we see ourselves, and how we see each other. Covenant is about relationship, and relationship begins with the most important relationship. How we think we see God affects how we see ourselves and how we see everyone else. If you will, covenant is about relationship. It's about the Father, and understanding who our daddy is affects our identity. Let's go back, the pictures. You think God's a distant old man? That's how you see God? You see God as a distant, grumpy, disconnected old man? How does it affect how you see yourself and everyone else? You believe if you think God's a distant, grumpy old man that we're on our own. We got an absentee landlord up there who's falling asleep at the wheel. If you think that's who God is, you're an isolationist. You're looking out for yourself. It's survival of the fittest, man. Because God brought us into this world, but he obviously isn't paying any attention to what's going on. If you think God's a distant old man, that affects how you see yourself and how you see everyone else. Or maybe you think that God's a vending machine. If you see God as a vending machine, well, then that's easy. It's all about me. That's divine narcissism right there. It's all about me because that's the kind of God I see. God's a vending machine. I call the shots. I look out for number one because that's how God made me. God made me to figure out how to get ahead in life. I figure out how to push the right buttons. I figure out how to get what I want. That's what life's all about because that's the God I see. And for everybody else, you have the same opportunity. If you don't know the right buttons to push, not my problem. And if you do, good for you. Or maybe if you see God as an angry police officer, how does that affect how you see yourself? How does that affect how you see everybody else? If you think God's an angry police officer, then this world that we live in is a really scary, bad place. Everyone's out to get you, and especially the angry police officer upstairs. So you know what? Keep your head down and run for cover when you can. Maybe God's a paramedic riding around in that ambulance. In case of emergency, break glass. Well, if that's how you see God, then God exists. Miracles are when you need something to happen. Isn't that funny? Your belief in miracles is contingent upon you getting something when you need it. There are never any other miracles that go on unless it's a miracle for you. You ever notice people who talk like that? How come God isn't giving me a miracle? 
never mind what else is going on in the world, but I didn't get what I wanted right now because God's a paramedic. And hey, I broke the glass. I called 911. Why didn't God show up? And for those of us who aren't experiencing God's presence as a paramedic, clearly we're not dialing the right number. Maybe we don't know what we're supposed to do in case of emergencies. How many of us, our default position to people who are going through something is say, well, you just need to know God. What God? God the paramedic? Or my favorite, if for us we see God as a teddy bear, how does that affect how we see ourselves in each other? I mean, how can God as a teddy bear, how could that be bad? I mean, if God's just cuddly and sweet and all about love, then that just means that we're all about love. And what's so wrong about that? I love a good case of the warm fuzzies, just like the next person. We just love each other, man. Because God's a teddy bear. You know what? God's not about telling you if you're doing anything wrong. It's all about you feeling good about yourself. Because gosh darn it, God's a teddy bear. And he wants you to know you're smart, you're brilliant, you're successful, and he likes you. That sounds great. But we more and more live in a world where God is a teddy bear. We more and more live in a world where we define love as a lack of accountability. That love means let me do what I want, be what I want, and we, we kind of ignore the fact that if everybody gets to do what they want and be what they want, everybody's not going to get to do what they want or be what they want. Beloved, how we see God, how we picture God affects how we see ourselves and how we see each other. We say we believe that God is our father. Most of us call him our dad. But, but functionally, practically, do we sincerely live out of the conviction that God is our father? And this is where I really want to take a moment because I want to acknowledge maybe why we don't go here very often. Let's be honest. For some of us who for whatever reason didn't have a dad growing up, or for those of us who perhaps didn't have the best role model, maybe a dad like one of the pictures that we talked about a second ago, it can be difficult to imagine God as our father. It can be difficult for more of us than we probably realize. In December 2010, there was a report called the U.S. Index of Belonging and Rejection. Patrick Fagan revealed in that report that more than half of American children are growing up in fatherless homes. More than half are growing up in fatherless homes. And there's a book called Fatherless Generation by John Sowers. And in that book, Fatherless Generation, John Sowers reports that fatherless homes in America account for 63% of youth suicides, 71% of teenage pregnancies, 90% of all homeless and runaway children, 70% of juveniles in state-operated institutions, 85% of all youth who exhibit behavioral disorders, 71% of all high school dropouts, and 85% of all youths sitting in prison. I don't know about you, but statistics like that can be telling. And they can be defeating for us as well, making it harder to perceive God as our Father and not easier. But we have to remember, and that's why we're doing this this morning. That's why it's so important to come back to the word of God. We can't define revelation simply by our experience. I can't define God's fatherhood by the actions or lack thereof of my own dad. And my dad was great. I'm a good dad 
but I'm not perfect. And therefore, I'm also not the standard when it comes to thinking about God as my father. Now, I know that like me, you know this. You've known this, but it doesn't make it any easier, though. Because when I think about God as father, as great as my dad, it is as good as I try to be. I know my dad is not perfect. And I know, trust me, that I'm not perfect as a father either. But here's the thing. God is. God is. The good news of the gospel, if you've never heard it this way before, is that we have more than a creator. We have a father. Sometimes when, when I ask people how they picture God, people like think they're pulling a trump card on me and they'll say, well, and maybe you did it this morning when I asked you in your head. People will say, well, how I picture God, when I picture God, I just picture Jesus. And that's fine. That's good. But it's worth noting that when Jesus is asked about who God is, he continually points to God as his father. He points to God as his father. And not just his father, our father. Jesus continually points to his father, our father, as a good father who provides, who comforts, who protects, who disciplines, who loves us more than we can imagine. He continually points us to our father as a good father who reveals to us what we can and should be as fathers to our own children and as brothers and sisters to each other. Beloved, how we think about God affects how we see ourselves and how we see each other. It affects our identity. I want you... Write this down because you'll forget. I want you this week to reflect on what does your relationship with God look like? What does your relationship with God look like? How do you picture God? Can I challenge you as your pastor this week to open up your Bible, to get into Scripture and reflect on your picture of God, what you really see when you think about God? Can I ask you, maybe in, the, in a smaller community of this, to talk with each other, chew on this text, What's your picture of God? And let me give you a little something to whet your appetite for your discussion, something to just chew on, because this just begs for more conversation. I told you that that translation of God made us in his image could be better translated. He put his imprint upon us. Picture this. God pressed the imprint of his presence on us. He left his handprint. Imagine that. His handprint in the clay from which we were made. It's like handprint in, a, in cement. You ever put your hands in cement? Put it, make a handprint in cement. God pressed the imprint of his hand into us when he made us in his image. And that imprint is meant to be filled by the hand that made it. You ever move somewhere, a new neighborhood, and someone had put their hands in cement, and you tried to put your hand in it, and it doesn't fit? The imprint that God placed in each one of our lives, that handprint is meant to be filled by the hand that made it. And yet, how many of us leave that space empty in our lives or we fill it with other junk. I want you to reflect and chew on this week what images of God do you need to let go of? What are you trying to put in that handprint that doesn't fit, that doesn't belong there? What false gods, angry police officer, paramedic, cuddly teddy bear, what false gods are you trying to fit in that God-shaped hole, that divine imprint that we all share? We are intended, beloved, to live within arm's reach of God so that he can put his hand upon us. We are meant to live within his touch. 
The invitation of the gospel, the invitation of discipleship, is that the handprint that the Lord left upon creation is not meant to remain empty. It's to be filled by his hand. The Lord's presence is always meant to fill our human existence and experience. That's the invitation of knowing God as our Father. That's the invitation of the call to discipleship. We are invited to let the revelation of God as our Father sink in so that we begin to know ourselves, our true identity, who we really are, whom we were created to be. But as we've also heard, our understanding of who God is as our Father makes us responsible for God's kingdom purposes. How we see God affects how we represent God to the world. How are we doing? How are we doing? The challenge of the gospel, the challenge of discipleship, is that the more you grow into your identity as a child of the Father, the greater the spiritual authority you are able and called to exercise. So if you are not exercising spiritual authority in your life, may I suggest that the starting point is you don't know your daddy. Because if we understand God is our father, that we are all his children, his sons and daughters, then we are challenged, beloved, to see each other, everyone, not them, just them, or not even just our neighbor, we're challenged to see everyone we encounter as our brother and sister. Everyone. Do we live this? Do you see everyone you encounter as your brother and sister? If we understand that God as our Father is not distant, aloof, or abusive, but rather that this is a God who seeks to provide, to protect, to reach out and rescue us, even when we're wayward, if we get that, then we are challenged to do no less for those we encounter around us. Beloved, should our forgiveness, should our mercy, should our compassion, should our love be any less than our father's? Do we represent our daddy well? The invitation and challenge, that's what discipleship's all about. My brothers and sisters in Christ, as we lay hold of our true relationship with our Father in heaven, may we together truly know who we are by laying claim to whom we are. From our identity as children of the Father, may we be enabled to draw from a love that is unending, unquenchable, and always present. And out of the power of this love, may we together offer the world not the reflection of a cracked mirror or an empty handprint, but rather the representation of a God, our Father, who created us in His image, who claims us as His own, and calls us into covenant relationship with Him and with each other. Amen?